Welcome to Long Now, a podcast exploring the many threads of long-term thinking. I'm Mikko Jarvenpa, the Director of Development at the Long Now Foundation. Optimization is all around us. What once was just a mathematical idea has become something of a societal dogma. We are pushed to optimize our labor, our bodies, and even our lives themselves. But how did we get here? And what are we losing with our single-minded pursuit of optimization? Coco Crum is a writer and applied mathematician who spent years working with data in Silicon Valley, the driving force behind this rising tide of optimization. Now, she lives on a remote island in the Pacific Northwest, where she wrote Optimal Illusions, her new book on the false promise of optimization. The book and this talk trace the roots of optimization from philosophers and physicists to tech giants and lifestyle gurus, examining the strange consequences of its rise along the way. Before we hear from Coco on optimization, a quick note. All of the Long Now Foundation's support comes from our donors and members. If you're already a member, thank you, you make all of this possible. If not, please consider going to longnow.org join and becoming the newest member of Long Now. It's only going to take a few minutes to set up, and after that you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Without further ado, Coco Crumb on the false promise of optimization. I'm so happy to be here, um, both at the Long Now, which is just a fantastic organization and a fantastic space, and in San Francisco in general. I wanted to, to start with a definition of optimization. There are a lot of ways to, to define it. In the book, I talk about it both as a mathematical concept, but also as a gospel or a philosophy that underlies a lot of our social lives. But I've sort of boiled it down to Optimization is a set of constraints or parameters, an objective function, which is what you're optimizing for, and a search process, which lets you search within those constraints in order to find the best as you've defined it with the, the objective function. I give this example of making lemonade, right? How do we find the best of all possible lemonades? And it turns out that that's a, you know, on its face, it's a seemingly simple question. But you might define the best lemonade in, in different ways, right? It might be a, something that's sweet. It might be something that's tart. It, you know, if you're in a hot climate, you might want it more watered down. And similarly, there, there are going to be different constraints and parameters based on where you're making this lemonade. Are, are lemons really expensive? Are they cheap? Do other things count as lemonade, like strawberry lemonade? Or is that kind of cheating? Something that's, you know, that I, I keep returning to is that oftentimes when we seek alternatives to, to optimization, we say we're optimizing too much, we might you know, suggest an alternative, which is like switching the, the objective function, right? So you, like this, this isn't the best lemonade. We shouldn't be making lemonade this way. Let's, let's change the objective function. We should be making tart lemonade in, instead of sweet. You know, that's, that's often an attractive way out. I think we see it often in, in the tech world. Like we've Things are, are moving too fast. We've scaled too much. We've optimized too much. How can we de-optimize? But the question is asked, like, how can we 
change the objective function to de-optimize in an optimal way. And I think that's, <laughs> um, and I mean, there's, there's so many examples we can, we can sort of mock and, and laugh at, um, but it points to a, a, a serious problem, right? Which is that this mindset has so overtaken our way of seeing that even slowing down is something we seek to do in an optimal way. So I'm going to refine the question that Miko started with, which is the driving question of this book and sort of what I've been thinking about for the last decade or so, which is how did optimization, this mathematical technical concept, take on such an outsized role in our philosophies, in our minds, in our day-to-day -day lives? How did it, in other words, become our modern gospel? And one of the things, if you end up reading the book, is um, that you'll find is that I end up comparing it in many places to a religion. I travel around the country in the early days of the pandemic to some of what I call the shrines to optimization that are kind of these monuments to how we've made the world more efficient and also what we've lost. And then obviously, uh, or maybe not so obviously, COVID and the early pandemic days brought to the fore um, some of the strengths as well as some of the shortcomings of optimization. We saw supply chains that we once thought were infallible, right? We could just click a button and the Amazon truck would pull up and out would, you know, cascade our various packages from all over the world within, you know, hours. That was no longer a given. The cheap food we'd come to take for granted over the last century and really the last 50 years in America I mean, we've, we have, in this day and age, in this country, some of the cheapest food and the most diverse food, not necessarily the most nutrient-rich or dense food, but um, certainly an, an, abun an, you know, an unseen abundance of food at unseemly low prices um, that we've never seen in history. So, so that be came into question as well, right, as some food supply chains, food growing was disrupted, and um, a lot of the cracks that had long existed in those systems were brought to the fore. So this is an example of one of the places I visited in order to um, get, you know, get to this personal journey that I was just talking about. In the middle of the field, the bulldozer pauses and out pops its driver for a cigarette break. It's a perfect September day in Northern Kentucky, crisp, blue, free. A neighboring dozer carves anthill ruts through the construction site. He's helping build the Amazon Air Hub, a $1.5 billion site expected to host some 100 cargo airplanes, 300 trucks, and a robotic sort center sprawling over a million square feet. Slated to open in 2021, it's currently a mess of construction equipment and barricades. As Americans moved more of their shopping online at the onset of the 2020 pandemic, Amazon sales increased some 40%. The company's revenues grew by a mind-boggling $100 billion. An efficiently scheduled fleet of aircraft will cut hours and days off already fast delivery times. If the North America circulatory system conveys packages and goods to its every extremity, this corner of Kentucky rep represents its anthill heart. UPS and DHL and Wayfair has distribution centers here. 65% of the population of the United States lives within 600 square miles, a one-day drive or 90-minute flight away. It's close to five other airports, to rail lines and rivers and ports. 
Nearly three billion pounds of cargo pass through the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport annually, a number that continues to rise as Amazon expands its fleet. Something as seemingly local as a Maine lobster might be diverted west through Kentucky, only to be sent east again to an upscale restaurant in New York. The circulatory system, its trucks and airplanes and conveyor belts and plastic bubble wrap, is kept in motion by a set of equations and code. This code tells each box where to go and when in the most efficient way. Undergirding all this is a set of mathematical models that's explored each possibility, assigned probabilities and planned contingencies. And beneath this set of models, the hidden choreographer is a way of looking at the world. So that's, <laughs> that's what this book is about. Something that's maybe not explicit in this talk or in the book is that, uh, and but perhaps goes without saying, is the technology of optimization has given us a huge number of gifts, right? We have the exposure to different cultures. We have the ability to travel um, because of optimized, you know, engineered aircraft and optimized airline schedules. Um, we do have foods from around the world brought to our doorsteps. We don't, you know, not all of us need to be farmers as just a few centuries ago, you know, a large percent of the population needed to do because we've optimized agriculture in important ways. This beautiful lady is Marie Kondo. We're all, or most of us are probably familiar with Marie Kondo's brand of minimalism and decluttering. And, you know, I really see her as sort of the apotheosis of optimization and that final bridge to making it's not just a philosophy, but sort of a, a lifestyle brand, like a consumerist thing you can sign on to and, and buy. And connecting, you know, it's taking what the utilitarians did one step further by connecting moral virtue to a way of being in the world optimally. Um, and, and to an improvement of society, right? It's right there in her book's title, The Life-Changing Magic of, of Tidying Up. Tidying up is not just something you do because it's the right thing to do, but it, it, because it will make you a better person, a more optimal person, and it will make society better. This is the section where I talk about what we've lost with optimization and not just what we've gained. This is a photo of Lake Mead, which was one of the huge you know, along with Lake Powell, one of the huge water projects of the early 20th century. These guys optimized for particular levels of water flow and rainfall based on a, a particular snapshot in time. And what they didn't do is anticipate what might happen in the future. And, you know, not no, through no fault of their own, right? I think it's a, it's a natural human tendency when we engineer, we have to constrain the system in a per particular way, we end up with cities built on expectations of water that are no longer there and really difficult choices now in order to keep systems of agriculture and systems of human civilization with enough water. These are some airplane boneyards. There's some in the Mojave Desert. There's some in Arizona. There were all the giant jets go to die. A lot of these out, you know, live their lifespans. Some of them, we just built jets too big and optimized for particular levels of travel. And then the, the jets had to be taken out of, out of service prematurely because there just wasn't the, the travel to, to justify them. Let's just say I 
have a chapter on bison too. There's an asymmetry to optimizing. It's easier to optimize. And in this case, it's a pretty brutal and um, tragic optimization. I profile an Eastern Shoshone man. He's an ecologist who's working to restore the bison, finding that what took a decade or two to optimize is going to take centuries um, to unwind. So how did we get here? I talk about how we got here in a couple of ways. One is how did we get here sort of intellectually? And the other is what are the, the components or the mathematical concepts or ideas that led to optimization? And in terms of how we got here as a philosophical idea, um, I argue that optimization, it's, you know, it's percolated into our mindsets in, in most of the West by now, but it's a, it's a very uniquely American or Anglo kind of concept. It took root in this sort of early Protestant ethos of, of America, and it was brought to fruition by some British thinkers, including John Stuart Mill, who came up with this philosophy of utilitarianism. And what utilitarianism says or, or seeks to do is to, to create the greatest good. Or part and parcel of that, right, is finding a way to connect one's individual actions to the greater good so that you're not only kind of thinking what's morally right or how should I best lead my life, but what which of my actions will be best for society as a whole. And this kind of thinking was a hugely important philosophical step in getting to where we are, we're sort of bridging this mathematical idea with what we see now in our in our daily lives. As a born and bred optimizer, um, I'm the child of many generations of engineers, and you know have studied these ideas, and for a long time, you know, been interested in maybe not overtly personal optimization, but you know how to be the best I can be uh, in a particular context. Something I found is that the opposite is much less straightforward than optimizing, right? Um, how do you step back and step away from this? How do you kind of opt out of, of the system? That's not as straightforward as it might seem. You know, I've, I've had these threads, maybe not of activist rebellion, but just sort of personal preference, like I'd rather walk than take an Uber. I'd rather have a flip phone. The more I, time I spent here in technology, the, the stronger this kind of countercultural impulse grew. I'll just read a little bit about how that happened. So this is about 2016, and I increasingly felt the fakeness in all this abstraction of Silicon Valley in trying to represent the lushness of a field with green pixels on a satellite map. By contrast, the general excitement for the tools of optimization seemed only to grow. The more I felt this fanaticism, the more I disbelieved it myself. My disenchantment was grounded in the excesses of the tech industry, but it didn't begin or end there. I bemoaned the yoke of corporate schedules and resisted upgrading my old flip phone for about a decade past the point of embarrassment. I began to contemplate, on the one hand, how to escape Silicon Valley, and on the other, how to destroy it. <clears throat> Disenchanted and without any better idea, I started talking to people. I found myself wandering around, first in the agricultural Midwest and then all over the country. I met farmers and freight brokers, carpenters and oil workers. 
As soon as I could afford it, I bought a patch of land on a remote northwestern island with a rundown cabin and endeavored to learn the skills necessary to fix it up. Everyone I told in San Francisco thought I was nuts. We were at the height of an incredible age, they reminded me. Not only that, but what I did was in high demand. Data science salaries were through the roof. I had the right knowledge to make a mark. What was I doing rambling on about well water testing and passive solar? I don't understand, with your skills, why you're not flying around with billionaires in private jets right now, a cousin volunteered, only half joking. Indeed, as my peers were spinning up data teams at head fund and pharmaceutical companies, I was hanging out at sugar beet factories in North Dakota. I still couldn't pinpoint the locus of my dis disillusionment, but I knew it had to do with the growing distance between my two worlds. The world represented by numbers on computer screens and the world in plain sight. It wasn't until I moved into the half-built cabin with a hole in the subfloor and walls I needed to finish and logs I needed to split in order to keep the wood stove going that it really hit home. Here I was, fiddling away on my laptop for some far-off research group that wanted a better way to model wildfire spread in California so it could sell more insurance to homeowners. Then I'd put the laptop away and fiddle with the faulty well pump or stuff walls with the sheep's wool insulation I'd cut it up in cardboard boxes from Oregon. My vegetable starts mostly faltered, and I slowly made friends in the community. I realized the skills that had brought me here, the skills that had put me at the pinnacle of this new belief system of efficiency and optimization, these weren't the skills that would help me now. I'm just going to leave you guys with a couple kind of mini takeaways that we can go into the Q&A with. You know, when, when we talk about ways forward, um, I think one of them involves this rethinking or re-remembering of first principles and remembering some of the things we've lost to optimization. We've lost a lot of particulars and specifics as optimization has commoditized and flattened and atomized our world. And we've also lost a, a sense of scale, um, of a connection between part and whole and of human scale as we kind of automate a lot of the world. So that's my first takeaway is a, a refinding or an attempt to refine some of these things that we've lost. And the second is, you know, something I learned through the process of writing this book and also, you know, stepping away, if not completely out of the, the tech world, um, is that there really isn't such a thing as opting out, especially in this day and age, right? Even where, where I live is plugged in as ever, right? There's fast internet, there's fast delivery, you know, slightly slower, but fast delivery times. Um, and instead of framing it as kind of opting out of optimization, which is very difficult to do unless you're truly becoming a hermit and, and going completely off grid, I think what the next era involves is kind of an expansion rather than a retraction of our, or contraction of our, of our language and our way of seeing. And so I'll just end with this very short that speaks to, I think, the difficulty of finding alternatives to optimization, but also the necessity that, that we do somehow. Half a lifetime ago, my sister said to me, exasperated, stop being such an optimizer. We were walking around a small town somewhere one we didn't know well, with a few hours to kill and a couple stops to make. Find a grocery store, a hardware shop, a place for lunch. 
It was before smartphones and we had no map. I began plotting aloud possible paths to maximize the chances we'd hit all of our spots in as little time as possible. She then told me to shut up, slow down, and relax. She was right. It was a sunny day, and we really had nothing to do beyond enjoying the weather and walk and conversation. There was no need for me to optimize. Yet her entreaty left me wondering, what is the alternative to optimizing? It surely wasn't picking the least optimal or the worst route, nor was it complete randomness. Clearly, we had some sense of direction and would eventually stop somewhere for lunch, passing by a place if it looked really bad, going in if we were hungry and it looked good. Nor was it some algorithmic intermediate, such as searching for X number of minutes and then choosing the next best place. The alternative was neither to embrace more optimization nor to rebel against it. It was, quite simply, to drop the language of efficiency entirely. So. Brilliant, thank you, Coco. So I was fascinated by the, by the dynamics of optimization that you identify in the, in the real world and how, because of these self-reinforcing dynamics of optimization, how difficult it is to back out, how mm -hmm. to de-optimize. Uh, but, but you also identify some kind of pockets of, of resistance, uh, to optimization. Like, why do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think the, the, the power or the dominance of optimization as a driving idea might be waning? So this is a great segue to John Wayne, <laughs> um, who I use it as, as an example of what I'm calling metaphoric breakdown. So I think that's the period we're in where this metaphor of optimization our way of seeing. And the last five or six years, and especially with the pandemic years, really magnified the, the cracks in that way of seeing. Um, so I think optimization as a technology continues to serve us in so many ways, um, but as a way of seeing, it's starting to, to break down. And I use the example of John Wayne, and in particular, a movie, the first movie. So John Wayne is this paragon of, you know, Western controlled masculinity, right? He's the guy who always fights for good in these cowboy movies that are very moralistic, right? It's very clear there's good, there's bad, and John Wayne is clearly on the side of good, right? And there's this one movie called The Cowboys in which it's the first movie in which John Wayne is killed on screen. And it was shocking to anybody who watched it at the time. Um, Roger Ebert said it, it violated the sacred convention of Western films, right? Which is that the bad guys never hit and the good guys never, never miss and never die. Um, so I think there's something akin to that happening right now. And you ask the question, why is it happening? I think we're starting to feel this, this disconnect and this lack of a, you know, this, this disconnect between the scale that we're living at as humans and the scale that optimization has enabled and, and given us. Thank you. Um, I'll take one from, from the live stream, uh, probably, possibly quickly. Uh, but Justin Myers asks, um, is, is this not really just a question of like, can the, can the problems of, of that you identify of optimization be solved by just selecting what to optimize for better? I don't personally think that they can, because I think the things that 
we've lost because of optimization um, are sort of lost outside of the the frame of of optimization itself. And the more we entrench on that frame by saying optimization is is how we're going to solve it, the more we forget these things that are outside of it. So if somebody, you know, I, I'm open to hearing how that would work, but the examples of this kind of solutionism that, that I've seen have only led to more fragilities, um, more alienation, and more loss of, of our humanity. Excellent. Um, yeah, more audience questions. One over there. Yep. I, thank you for being here. Um, I, I think you may have answered it a little bit, but is the issue optimization or is the issue a narrow-minded and selfish set of outcomes we're aiming towards? So is there a way to still have optimization, but encompass some of the things you think we're, we've lost? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think my argument or the book is can be seen as maybe more pessimistic than it is or, or than I am. Um, I certainly think that the technology of optimization and the way of seeing of optimization, of improvements and engineering, right, has led to amazing things and amazing ways of, of seeing the world. I am simply arguing that it can't be the only way. And this is really, again, not a call to opt out or to return to some primitive state so much as to allow back in other ways of seeing that aren't about improving and control. And I think control is really that shadow side of improving and maximizing. I'll take one from the live stream here. Um, uh, Curtis Mitchell asks, is, is optimization not just the socio socioeconomic version of what nature does? For example, evolution optimizes for reproduction or efficient metabolism. I, I disagree with that, actually, because I think that that's the human um, lens on what nature does, right? We like to see nature in our own image. And these metaphors are very powerful, right? Um, we see brains as working like computers and, and vice versa. And I think th these metaphors can be very good, right? Because they do lead to new insights. Like the theory of evolution may not have, we may not have come up with it <laughs> if we hadn't been seeing things in a, in a particular way or as potentially subject to, to our control. I, I do think the, the natural world, if you look at how evolution or, or how the natural world optimizes, there are some distinctions between how we might optimize or engineer things as, as humans, right? There's a lot of randomness in how evolution works. There's a lot of mistakes. And when we work to engineer systems, we're, we're trying as much as possible to erase redundancies and erase mistakes, whereas nature kind of preserves some of those redundancies. Yeah, that definitely resonates. We have this idea of we, we romantic, romanticize nature as, as very efficient, mm -hmm. but it's, it's the process of evolution can be very, very wasteful, of course. Kurt? So you've, so you've hinted at a relationship between optimization and thinking in terms of solutions. Um, and so I wonder what you feel about the phrase or the idea of solving climate change. And, and the reason I'm giving that frame is that, you know, a lot of 
optimization is involved in that and even breaking out of the idea of solving it, which I personally think is misguided or is a frame that's really hard to break out of. So I, I wonder if you could expand a little bit about solution, how optimization solutions work and specifically how maybe it relates to the question of solving climate change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the way I think about it, and I write a little bit about it in the book, is like, why have we, it's interesting to me that we've gone to a state where solving is the, the framework for it, right? Um, I don't, you know, I have my opinions on whether that's that's right or wrong. But to me, it's interesting to, to compare the environmentalism of, you know, 50 or 100 years ago, that in which, which was focused on the are much more connected in terms of cause and effect, right? And often you see the the environmental problems that have been most tractable for humans. To some, I mean, they're often human created problems like acid rain or toxic chemicals. The ones that have proven most tractable are are the ones um, that are less abstract and more connected, and not about solving this problem um, that's global and humongous and very, very abstract, right? Carbon dioxide is, it's invisible, it's a concept, right? Um, so I think it's interesting that we're now in the state where, where we do wanna solve it and solve it as a big problem um, versus see it as sort of resolving the, the more local and tractable impacts of our of our behavior and our presence on the environment. Thank you. This has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you for joining us today. In the weeks since we recorded this talk, I've been thinking about, as Coco says, how the only way out of the trap of optimization is to collectively expand our vocabularies and our thinking around the decisions we make leaving optimization behind entirely. If this episode affected you like it did us, please tell your friends about it. We rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow our audience, and so anytime you rate or share the podcast or tell a friend about an episode you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. If you'd like to watch the full video of Coco Crumb's talk, learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, or become a Long Now member, go to longnow.org. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work would not be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003 Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Daniel Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We look forward to the next time. <laughs>